Welcome to this week's episode of Seen and Heard, industry updates for the modern dairy family. I'm Darby Toth, a technical field services representative with Western United Dairies. And I'm Melissa Lima, the North Coast and Organic Field Services Rep with Western United Dairies. We're in week eight of season two. It seems like it's rolling along pretty fast, Darby. I know. I keep thinking that February has been going on forever and it should be over, but then I realize that it's almost March and that's kind of scary too. So I'm not sure which I prefer at this point in the year. I think it's, um, it's a little foggy here today, but it's been nice. I think spring fever is definitely going around with these guys. I've had a lot of calls this week. I could tell they're really getting back into the swing of things. So makes me feel good. I'm also getting back a little more into the swing of things, planning my first, um, trip out into the field next week after three or four months of staying home again. So really glad for all of that to happen and just glad we're, the weather's getting better. The days are getting longer. It's feels like we're in a good place again, hopefully. I know moving forward, hopefully moving towards some light at the end of the tunnel here. Yeah. Yeah, It sounds like vaccinations are happening throughout the state. We'll talk about that a little more at the end, but I think as we get more people vaccinated, cases are falling and Maybe this pandemic is just just starting to wind up a little bit here. I hope so. I remember almost a year ago and it was, oh, it'll just be two weeks. And now here we are. So I'm looking forward to getting back out in the field, just like everybody else is. Like 14 days to flatten the curve really took advantage of us. So um, we'll get there. Um, In the meantime, we have a good episode today. Tiffany brings us a market update. Lots to talk about in the markets this week. Um, Anya sat down with me this morning and we talked a little bit about the quota implementation plan referendum that starts next week on March 4th. Lots of questions of CDFA that they sent us back answers for. So I think that's a really good information piece to producers. And just as a little plug, um, be looking out for your ballot in the mail and make sure you're letting folks um, like Western or just directly to CDFA know if you don't get that. And then um, Paul Souza brings us an update on the tricolored blackbird. We did record our weekly webinar yesterday. Paul had some good questions, but yesterday afternoon there was some late breaking news. So Darby, you sat down with Paul to kind of talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, but we'll pop that in right at the end of, of that update. Awesome. So before, uh, without further ado, I guess I should say we will let Tiffany take it away. Hey folks, hope you had a great week. I would say that the biggest news centered around some USDA reports we received on uh, Tuesday. The first was a milk production report for uh, the month of January. USDA reported US milk output up 1.6% for the month. That fell below most expectations, which were closer to two, two and a half, maybe even even heavier. Um, The Midwest, Mideast and Southwest were all up as well as the Northeast. The biggest surprises I would say came by way of uh, uh, Pacific Northwest, which was down 0.7% and probably even more so the data for uh, California, which also was down 0.7%. The California data really um, is quite contrary to almost all anecdotal reports received kind of around the state for milk output for the month. Um, so I would expect possibly some revisions to that number, but we will not know that or see that until the March report rolls out, uh, March 18th. Um, so the markets, I would say had kind of a, a muted response to that the day after the reports, but 
on Thursday did gain some steam, I think, on, on the heel of those reports. The other key USDA uh, re report we got was cold storage, uh, which showed cheese stocks um, up still 3.3% year over year, but the December to January build was not as heavy um, as typical, which speaks to you know little less production or better demand or some combination of the two. Uh, on the heels of that, we did see the cheese market rebound just a little bit for the week. Blocks finished at 161.75, up eight cents, and barrels finished at 142, up three quarters of a cent. Uh, moving over to butter, we also did get a, an updated look at inventory figures, and no surprise there, stocks were pretty heavy. Um, we were ended January up um, about 33% year over year on, on butter stocks. The butter uh, market had kind of a mixed week. We ended up lower, even though we had some, some up days. Uh, we are closing out now the old crop period that is starting next week. Uh, only butter production past December of 2020 can be brought to the exchange. So we'll see if that changes the situation. But from what we can tell, there is still plenty of milk out on the countryside and components are still running uh, pretty heavy. Nonfat also uh, got a little lift. We, you know, had slumped down into the 109 range the previous week. We rallied up four cents this week to close at $1.1325. Um, despite some plant shutdowns last week, particularly across Texas um, due to the weather, uh, we're hearing that powder is still available. But at the same time, I think demand is, is still pretty reasonable. So we seem to be fairly narrow tidying up. Uh, no trading range there for non-fat. Uh, just a friendly reminder for anybody considering uh, second quarter dairy revenue protection coverage, that deadline is quickly approaching. You have until March 15th to finish up any uh, milk pr uh, floor protections you'd like to get in place. Uh, let me know if you have any questions. And next week, we'll also get another round of reports. We'll have the global dairy trade event on Tuesday, as well as a dairy products report on Thursday. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Jessica with PG&E. 811 is a free service to keep our community safe. Before you do any digging, PG&E will mark your gas and electric lines so you don't hit them. Call 811 before you dig. To learn more, visit pge.com safety. Well, thanks again, Tiffany. As always, we appreciate you and your market update. And now we're going to hop over. Melissa was able to sit down with Anya and chat about the upcoming uh, quota referendum. Hey, Anya, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Of course, we um, invited you today because there's some updates and some information producers need to know about uh, the upcoming referendum on the quota implementation plan. So as producers probably know from our podcast about five or six weeks ago, at the end of January, um, the department in conjunction with the ALJ's recommendation called a referendum for dairy producers to vote on the quota implementation program. That referendum is going to run March 4th through June 1st. So next week, um, towards the end of the week, producers will be getting their ballots in the mail. And we kind of just want to give them an update on the whole process and, you know, what they should do if they feel like something in the process isn't working correctly for them. 
Yeah, I think that's a great segue just to remind people um, that may not be living and breathing quota the way uh, organizations that represent dairy farmers in California are. Uh, United Dairy Families of California is a coalition of dairy farmers uh, representing different regions throughout the state. And they um, did submit and qualify a petition uh, that effectively sunsets the quota program um, on March 1st, 2025. The referendum, or excuse me, the petition also called for equalizing the regional quota adjusters uh, such that all quota premiums in all counties equal $1.43 per hundred weights. Okay. Uh, there was a hearing last fall where ultimately the um, administrative law judge, Timothy Aspinwall, recommended to the department that a referendum be held in this regard. And so the secretary uh, decided to agree with that decision and she's announced that decision to hold the referendum, as Melissa said, uh, between March 4th and June 1st of this year. Great, so I guess first things first, the ballots are gonna show up towards the end of next week, beginning of the week after. What will those ballots look like, Anya, when they arrive? So producers can keep an eye out. Yeah, the ballots will be mailed via USPS on March 4th. So um, they, the US, excuse me, CDFA is not guaranteeing when they're going to arrive in the producer's mailbox, but they will come the regular post office. Um, there's a number of things that we wanted to make sure people were um, understanding would be attached to their ballots. Right now, each ballot is going to indicate the mail number or producer number or numbers if there's more, more than one dairies. That's very helpful because sometimes producers particularly if they um, aren't doing a, a, or aren't familiar with a full quota assessment number, is they're looking for that. So again, that cover letter is gonna include the producer number. There's also the names of the individuals on file for the title of the dairy or dairies that would be included in that cover letter and the mailing address for that dairy or dairies. So these things are uh, very helpful. Uh, UDC, UDFC was able to have some good dialogue in getting them um, you know, to kind of take a, a step forward in facilitating the uh, referendum and hopefully eliminating <laughs> some of the duplicative questions that we knew came up the last several referendums. Absolutely. So the ballots are going to get sent out. Producers should be looking for that with their producer number on the ballot. Um, make sure that that's correct. What should a producer do if they find that something on their ballot maybe isn't correct or that they feel the ballot is flawed in some way or if they don't get a ballot? And I would say yeah. we probably would leave it till March 10th. If you don't get a ballot by March 10th, that would probably be a good day to check in. I think that's a, a fair suggestion. Uh, we are directing all questions like that to Stephen Donaldson at CDFA. And our website contains his contact information, both phone number and email. If you don't receive a ballot, that would be the first place I would start. Um, but uh, there's a number of things that maybe we can talk about that would disqualify your vote. Uh, and I think that um, those are really critical because this is, a, this is an important vote for the industry. Absolutely. So um, an outline for this validation, I think that it's really important to have in context, and I can't state this enough, that CDFA will not be updating the industry with respect to how many votes have been cast, who's been casting votes, all of that is going to remain not only confidential, but they will not be opening the ballots until far after the close of the voting season on June 1st. 
So uh, they will not monitor, report, or publish these percentages of ballots received. And I will remind producers at this time, the threshold for the referendum um, is tricky. It's you have to have 65% of eligible producers voting that represent 51% of the milk produced to qualify it, or the inverse is also true, 51% of the eligible producers voting representing 65% of the milk. So as you can understand, um, CDFA giving us a hint as to how the percentages are coming in, depending on your point of view, might be useful, but they are not going to do that this time around. Uh, ballots are not even going to be opened or counted until the referendum voting period has ended. So that's so, kind of a really important context. So. Okay, good. So just like in a general election, if there's something going on with your ballot and you send it in incorrectly, it will not be counted, but they're not going to reach out and let you know that there was incorrect information or an incorrect signature. So just be very cognizant of who is listed on that ballot and who needs to fill the ballot out. Correct. And okay. um, well, let's go through ways that would, you know, that, that could invalidate your ballot, because that's a, that's the flip side of this question is even if you send in a ballot in, you, you need to do it right. Yeah. So um, thankfully, CDFA is going to be providing that lead information, you know, who's on file to sign, which dairies or what. Uh, that's actually shockingly uh, going to be really helpful to our yeah. field reps <laughs> yeah. because we were going to have to field a lot of questions. So I, I appreciate that. But ways that the department will not qualify or handle ballots deemed invalid include um, if there was no signature to certify the ballot. Okay. Believe me, that happens all the time in a regular election. Um, no indication of a yes or no vote. Uh, believe it or not, some people do send in votes blank, so we can't have that. And uh, then I think the third and most um, you know, common problem is that the CDFA would not have received or have a postmark on or before the date of June 1st, 2021. So again, CDFA is going to be providing the January 2021 market milk production for the tallying purposes. I think that's helpful. Um, if you do get your ballot and see some of this information in error, the sooner you raise it, the sooner a duplicate ballot or a revised ballot can be sent out. So please check those cover letters that CDFA is going to attach to these ballots and make sure that the information listed is something you agree with. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, if you, even if you're not sure today, it wouldn't be a bad idea to email Stephen Donaldson over at CDFA right now because they're, they're getting ready for bear and uh, next week's gonna be an important week. Definitely. Okay, so basically double check everything. <laughs> I, would, I would say that when you mail the ballot in, we recommend with a lot of different regulatory documents that producers send it in with their either return receipt or certified mail. What do you think about that, Anya? Um, I, I don't really have an opinion on that. I think um, if you want to just verify, the one thing you can do that CDFA said they will happily entertain is if you're concerned about your ballot being received, you can call CDFA or inquire via email with Stephen Donaldson and he will tell you yes or no. Okay, great. So that's um, that's very helpful. Awesome, so producers, if you don't wanna pay the extra four or $5 for certified, just follow up about 10 days after you mail your ballot back to make sure that it was received. And 10 days is a long time, but we like to give the little, the post office a little grace these days, I think. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, I think that, um, and you know, just to clarify, because this continues to come up, um, CDFA is not going to be releasing the names of those producer, producers that have submitted ballots. Obviously, the vote is fully confidential after it's concluded. Um, and uh, so those are, I think, you know, signs of, of, you know, not just good faith in an election, but uh, something that CDFA has decided going forward, they're not going to be releasing um, any information with respect to how the referendum is qualifying. If you do think that maybe your ballot has been, um, maybe you didn't get a ballot uh, come March 15th and you think you needed one, um, the state can issue a duplicate. Uh, the duplicate will include the ballot number and producer number, but make sure that you don't send both the original and the duplicate in. That does happen. Uh, CDFA is only going to count the duplicate in those situations. So I think that they've tried to think of as many ways, um, you know, as possible that, that these questions will come up. But if you have more questions and you'd like Western to ask those of CDFA, we're happy to do that. Awesome. Yeah. And I think just it's so important. This referendum, dairy producers really want to have their voice heard on both sides of the issue. So please make sure you check for your ballot in the next 10 or 15 days. If you don't receive one and you think you should have, communicate. If you think there's an issue, communicate. Double check when you send it in. And I think um, we'll get good turnout and good results for this referendum vote. Definitely. And please let us know if you have questions or concerns. Uh, the information with respect to the referendum and all the supporting documents is now on Western United Dairy's website under quota. It's the very first page. Um, and of course, I encourage you to visit UDFC's uh, webpage. They have a lot of background information around the process and what we all went through to get to this point today. Awesome. And I will link both of those on our show notes in case producers just want to jump right on there and click the link. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thanks, Happy Sonia. voting. Thanks. Take care. Yosemite Farm Credit is the farmer's choice for agriculture financing. As a farmer-owned cooperative, we are dedicated to serving our neighbors in the agriculture community with financial products and services tailored to your operation and backed with the relationship you can trust. Whether you're purchasing real estate, making improvements to the dairy, or wanting to purchase or lease equipment, we're here to help our members prosper. Visit our website at yosemitefarmcredit.com to find a branch location nearest you. Thanks again, Anya, for joining us for that update. Up next, we rerun our virtual kitchen table meeting this week in which Paul Souza addresses the issue of tricolored blackbirds nesting in dairy winter forage crops. And stay tuned because shortly after the virtual kitchen table meeting recording, Paul had a meeting with California Department of Fish and Wildlife, and he has some late breaking news that we share at the end of his segment about the results of that meeting. So. Uh, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Uh, today we're going to talk about the uh, tricolored blackbird, which you see a picture of here. Uh, it's similar to the common red-winged blackbird, uh, but the red-winged blackbird has a yellow bar where the tricolored blackbird has a white bar under that uh, red patch on its wings. Uh, it's kind of difficult to tell, um, you know, especially as they're flying around, those birds are very similar. Another way to distinguish them is that tricolors nest in very large colonies that may contain tens of thousands of birds in a single colony, whereas red-winged blackbirds nest individually. If you see a cloud of birds flying in formation 
and nesting in large numbers in close quarters, they may be tricolored blackbirds. And I've got that here on my second slide, uh, a close-up picture of a flock of tricolored blackbirds. They will fly together kind of in formations. And then, you know, they all nest uh, in relatively close quarters uh, in a field. This species was abundant on the west coast of North America from Washington State to Baja, California, although most of the population is located in California. They prefer to nest in wetland habitats, uh, though they can use a variety of habitats for nesting. But with the loss of habitat, the population has been declining significantly. Uh, they have found dairy winter forage fields as a suitable nesting sites with their loss of natural habitat. Uh, they nest in the San Joaquin Valley, primarily from Merced to Kern County from March through June. Then they move to the Sacramento Valley where they nest a second time during the summer. Uh, one year they were found nesting in a uh, dairy cornfield in Glen County, but that is uh, very unusual. Uh, they tend to return to the same general area year after year. So if you or your neighbors have had tricolors in the past, they will likely be back in the same neighborhood. Uh, the population has been recovering since 2014, but numbers remain low. Uh, they do a survey every three years uh, to measure the population. And again, 2014 was the lowest recording they ever had, but the numbers have been coming back pretty well after that. But in April of 2018, the tricolored blackbird was listed as a threatened species by the California Fish and Game Commission. Uh, this makes it illegal to harm, pursue, or kill tricolored blackbirds in California. I was there uh, in Ventura when that happened, uh, speaking against the listing. Um, you know, there were folks, uh, the petition was brought by the Center for Biological Diversity. They said this bird is gonna go extinct if we don't list it. I didn't believe that. Yeah, I believe that its numbers are low, but the population is fairly stable. Um, especially with the voluntary actions that dairies were taking prior to the listing. I, I don't think there was a, a need for the listing, and I spoke to that uh, when I was there. Uh, these birds prefer to nest in fields uh, with coarse stems of triticalia or wheat, or we uh, weedy fields with malva or mustard. They weave some of the stems together and form a nest, which is suspended off of the ground, uh, which you can see here, uh, two uh, tricolored blackbird chicks uh, waiting for their parents to drop some insects into their mouth uh, in a, I believe this is a triticale field in Merced County. Um, they're able to complete their nesting in about 45 days after starting to build nests, but many times this will extend past when the field would have normally been harvested. This creates a major issue for dairies who are wanting to harvest feed for their cows when the tricolor is nesting. Harvesting a field with nesting tricolors is a crime uh, with potential pen penalties now that it's listed as a threatened species. The Department of Fish and Wildlife, uh, environmental organizations, and members of the public are out normally scouting uh, for nesting colonies during the springtime. NRCS also has biologists that can meet with you to determine if you have tricolors and discuss the, their program in confidentially with you. Whatever you conversation you have within RCS, uh, they cannot share outside of uh, that conversation uh, with enforcement agencies, for example, unless you've given them permission to do so. Uh, NRCS has traditionally funded farmers from uh, nesting uh, with tricolors to delay harvest until the birds have finished nesting. However, that funding was not secure and was offered on a year-by-year -year basis. 
Several years ago, Audubon of California joined with Western United, Dairy Cares, the California Farm Bureau Federation, and Sustainable Conservation to secure a grant from USDA NRCS to fund harvest delays for five years so that we knew we had a source of funding. We weren't doing this year to year thing. Uh, that grant for the first five years have uh, expired and it's now been extended for another term, uh, you know, securing funding for this effort. We know we've got the funding. The uh, six year average payment has been $668 per acre of forage that must be delayed in harvest through this grant. However, uh, and now we get to the point of uh, today's presentation and why this is big news this year. Last year, USDA NRCS did an internal audit of their practices and found that they were using the wrong practice code uh, to fund this effort. They shifted it over to another practice code and that new practice code has a payment limitation of $424 per acre for conventional and $483 for organic crops. So the grant partners are working with NRCS to see if we can increase that payment limit or augment it with other sources. Uh, we've talked to the California Department of Fish and Wildlife who is interested in closing the gap that was created this year, uh, but their ability to do so depends on the state budget negotiations and will not be available until the new fiscal year, which starts July 1st, uh, if it's available at all, if things work out in the budget for them. Um, I have another call with the Department of Fish and Wildlife this afternoon on this subject, and I'm hoping to get some good news where maybe they can add some additional funding to this. Um, watch our newsletter as I plan to write an article for our newsletter as this continues to evolve, uh, and maybe with the news from tonight's, uh, this afternoon's call with Department of Fish and Wildlife. Also, you can feel free to call me if you have specific questions. So thank you for joining today and a big thank you to Melissa for coordinating the technical part of this uh, through Zoom. Are there any uh, specific questions for me that uh, anyone has right now? Not a question, but a comment. Now, first and foremost, I want to thank you for putting this presentation together. Um, it's something that I've always seen in the uh, Western United newsletters. And I'm like, all right, what the heck is this tricolored blackbird? Because I've seen the black with the, the red and the gold, but, and I always thought that was a tricolored blackbird, yet we don't, we, we see them once in a while down here in the southwest part of Tulare where we're at, yet seeing that it's not the gold, it's white, I'm like, okay, wow, I've never seen that before. So that's pretty interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. They do congregate with the red-winged blackbirds like during the summer and fall and winter. And then in the spring, the tricolored blackbird would split out in its own colony. Um, so, it, you know, it is interesting. It very much shares a lot with a red-winged blackbird and spends time with them. But it's only during the spring where they split out and form their own colonies and then do their nesting separately. Interesting. And you will see, uh, you know, I've done a lot of swathing. Um, swathing winter forage and you do see red wing blackbirds but the thing with them is you know you'll they'll have a nest here and there'll be another nest you know 20 feet away or you know there's a, there's a few of them in a field they're very spread out when it's tricolored blackbirds uh you tend to know it just by the numbers they tend to be in very large numbers in a in small area now when they fly in groups is it a, a particular time during the day or is it just randomly throughout the whole day it's randomly throughout the whole day I've seen them uh, and you, you, know, you kind of see them do, doing these aerial acrobatics um, 
kind of interesting to see the way they fly uh, in patterns. Um, you know, I see that at any time during the day. Yeah, especially as they're kind of starting to nest. Once they start to nest, their behavior changes. Uh, you know, you'll have the females laying on the eggs. Um, the males will be hanging out. And then once the uh, chicks hatch, they are uh, getting feed, food, uh, you know, grasshoppers or other insects and bringing them back to the young. Uh, their flying patterns change. They're very much on a, on a mission. They fly in a straight line out to somewhere where there's, you know, grasshoppers or some other kind of insect and are bringing those back. It's not that same kind of big cloud of birds. Um, it's interesting to see that also. And a lot of times alfalfa fields are, they're getting like, um, you know, weevils from alfalfa fields and bringing them back to feed the young. Or like I said, grasshoppers from rangeland. If there's uh, rangeland around and there's grasshoppers, they would also be going to those sites and bringing back those insects for the young. Interesting, thank you. Yep. Uh, interestingly, we have not had them nesting in Kings County. Uh, it's been very rare that they've been in Kings County. We have quite a few in Kern and Tulare County. Um, there's been some, you know, kind of in your area a little bit further to the east, um, but like right in your neighborhood and to the west of that in Kings County, uh, for some reason has been an area where they don't hang out much. Um, also, um, Merced County and Madera County is another place where they have uh, kind of regularly been found nesting in dairy. That probably explains why we don't see them out here where our dairy is because we're only about five miles away from Corcoran, right yeah. there at the Kings County line. So something about this area, I guess they don't like it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure why it is. That's very interesting. I mean, they nest all around uh, Kings County, but um, you know, there's folks looking for them, but for some reason, uh, colonies have not been spotted in Kings County. Well, if you have any other questions, you can always feel free to call me uh, with specific questions. I'd be happy to answer those. Uh, but that was the big news that I definitely want to get out to folks is so that they're aware um, as they you know, go into spring and start to see tricolors uh, on their fields that if they've had a past experience you know, and the payment rates were okay, kind of covered them, uh, that that's not necessarily the same this year, but we are here uh, pushing to get funding uh, to you know, try to make that up uh, somewhat. And, Hopefully we're, we're successful, we're trying hard. Uh, there's a group of us that are doing that. And uh, a big help also from Audubon of California. Um, they really are on our side on this. They, they really wanna help the dairymen to conserve these birds. They don't want this to be a conflict. And so um, they, it's been a great partnership and they are really working hard to try to find additional funding for this. And we'll certainly bring an update in our um, newsletter and on the podcast this week if anything changes with your call this afternoon. Okay. Thanks, Paul. Listen, thanks everyone for joining us. Have a good afternoon. Right after recording this last segment, I had a call with the staff from the California Department of Fish and Wildlife regarding possible funding to augment the payment from NRCS for farmers having to delay harvest due to nesting tricolored blackbirds. They had good news to offer. They have funding available. However, in order to make that funding available, they still need to go through a contracting and approval process. I'm not one to count my chickens before they hatch, but I'm optimistic that the department will be able to close the gap between what NRCS was able to pay farmers last year and what they are able to pay this year. Please watch our newsletter for more information on this as it develops. And you can also contact me directly if you have any questions on this or any other environmental issues. 
Thank you. Okay, well, thanks, Paul, for that update and that great webinar this week. Um, just a couple of quick announcements, Darby. We didn't really have a question of the week, so to speak, this week. Lots of questions from lots of people on lots of topics. So we wanted to just cover a couple housekeeping things. Um, as field reps, we want to let folks know we are slowly moving back out into the field. Um, we're trying to be aware of the COVID situation and where there may be outbreaks. And um, so we're going to be doing it slowly. We're not going to be out in full force, but if you need something, need something dropped off, posters, trespassing signs, anything like that, let us know and we'll do our best to get it out to you. And that kind of started off this week with visits for our launch of WERS. So you and I both got to get out in the field a little bit the last couple of weeks, Darby. Yeah, it's been great. I've been in the field for two WERS visits now and you've done one, right? Yes. So it's been exciting. It's been good to see some producer faces and really get some momentum going. I think that being out in the field and really getting to explain this new program on farm to producers is exciting and I think really important. So I'm, I'm looking forward to continuing those visits. I know, me too. It's a great way to ease back out into the field and we're bringing those, these producers a great program. So looking forward to more of that as well. And then real quick, um, Darby, I don't know about you, I've been getting a lot of questions about vaccines. So I wanted to throw in a quick update. Um, many areas are moving into or have been vaccinating farm workers. It really depends on geography. So from county to county, it really differs. In some counties like Stanislaus, they're still vaccinating folks in tier 1A, which is healthcare workers and first responders. In other counties like Humboldt, where I'm at, they're moving into farm workers. And then places like Sonoma County, they've been doing it for a few weeks. So we are working to get more uniform guidance out. But in the meantime, if you have a question based on your county, just call Darby or I, and we can send you in the right direction or connect you with the correct people to get information specific to your county and where your employees may be able to go. Yep, thanks for that update, Melissa. And then just as one little note as we wrap up here, we do have a really special guest coming up. Sometimes with everybody's schedules, we have to move things around to accommodate different schedules, but our special guest will be joining us in the next couple of weeks to talk about how she advocates for dairy and nutrition on social media platforms. So keep an eye on our social media and on the podcast for that and maybe a sneak peek of who's going to be on. Yeah, I'm really excited for this and we won't reveal too much, but I think um, our listeners will really enjoy this one. So uh, today we want to give a huge shout out to Paul Souza, Anya Radaba for joining us um, and to all our listeners and members. And just a quick reminder, reach out to us with questions, comments, content requests. We are, we love your content requests, guys. We really want to hear from you about what you want to hear about. Those can be sent to mlima at wudairies.com or d-a-r-b-y at wudairies.com. And remember, we'd love it if you would rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite platform. Have a great week, everybody. While Western United Dairies respects the varied views of our podcast guests, Please know that views expressed on Seen and Heard may not necessarily reflect the positions of the Western United Dairies Board of Directors. Thank you to Western United Dairies generous 2020 business sponsors, Gar Bennett, California Dairy Magazine, Farm Credit Alliance, f Ag Services, Moss Energy Works, Bennett Environmental, PG&E, 
and Yosemite Farm Credit. We appreciate our sponsors and thank them for their continued support. If you'd like more information on how to sponsor Western United Dairies or this podcast, please send us an email at info at wudairies.com. That's info at wudairies.com. Thank you.